Hi, glad you could make it. Got your latte mochiato, matcha green, biscuit. All right then, let's get started. Welcome, Welcome to, to the Inspired Word Cafe. Cafe. I'm your host, Shimshan Abadia, they, them. With me is... M. McMillan, he, they. And this is your monthly podcast of poetry, prose, and all the piping hot goodness of the written word. Here we shine our coffeehouse spotlight on writers whose words have made a difference to us, whose writing has resonated and done some good in being read. Here, we focus on the words that inspire us. Today in the cafe, we've got Claire Thiessen, she, her. Claire Thiessen is a writer, multimedia artist, and operator of the small publishing imprint Broke Press. She resides on the unceded traditional territory of the Silk Okanagan people in Vernon, BC. As a writer, she dabbles in poems and stories and occasional other pieces. In 2018, she self-published a small collection of poetry titled A Naked Truth slash The Naked Heart. Her most recent published work appeared in the winter 2021 issue of the Malahat Review. As operator of Broke Press, Thiessen publishes chapbooks of Canadian writing, as well as poem zines, and the most recent Broke Press publication is a collection of poetry by Ethan Heckrod titled Burlap and Birch. She'll be reading a bit of her own poetry and then discussing her adventures in the world of chapbook publishing. And as always, we'll end things off with a brief discussion about what writing has been inspiring our fellow collective members here at the Inspired Word Cafe. A note before we get started, this episode touches on topics of death, assault, and processing trauma. Please do what you need to do to take care of yourself before listening. Now, Claire Thiessen, thank you for joining us at the Inspired Word Cafe. Thank you for having me, you guys. Yeah, we were so excited to get you on to talk about some poetry and talk about publishing poetry as well. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you guys about it. Awesome, awesome. Well, you have a couple of poems that uh, you're going to be reading for us. The, the first poem I'm going to read is a segment of a long poem I'm working on that is still like bare bones beginnings. <laughs> And then two of the poems from a series of three that I'm going to read were just published in the Malahat Review. Oh, very exciting. Wonderful. Uh, is any of this uh, pre-chapbook material, are we going to get to see the longer one in a chapbook sometime soon? Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Hopefully one day. It's very early stages. I mm-hmm. keep having more ideas, so... Who knows oh, when it'll be done. It's always like yeah. that. And then you keep adding on to it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, in that case, uh, why don't we take a listen to some of your poems? Okay. So this first one I'm going to read is called Plastic Flowers Under Snow. I have taken to walking through the cemetery that is on the hill below my house. The snow has muted all the colors of plastic flowers that sit in plastic cups above the plots. So everything looks gray and white and pastel pink, yellow, blue, purple, orange. From Pleasant Valley Road, the cemetery looks small and fresh, neat row on row on row. Wandering the paths, however, I find that there are many acres of dead buried like the rest of our city is beneath half maple, half ponderosa pine. I do not notice any names I recognize, but I am sure once the snow melts off smaller headstones, I will. I imagine I am walking to my grandfather's plot, that he is buried in my city, a few blocks from where I reside, and not in prairie ground 
frozen six months of the year, along with his cousins and neighbors and son in small town Saskatchewan, just over a thousand kilometers from these graves. I wonder who is in charge of clearing the snow from roads and trails that follow the shape of the hill and the map of the plots in the cemetery. Someone from the city or from the funeral home, I assume. I wonder what time they are here the mornings after it snows. I wonder the priority of graveyard road versus living road. I wonder, do coffined bodies freeze and thaw with the season? In the half of the cemetery where ponderosas stretch, the branches have been cut away a few meters up the trunk to let light in above the graves, I guess, or air maybe. There are large monuments and plaques scattered throughout for the various tragedies that have occurred in my city's short history. The Okanagan Hotel fire in 1909, the massacre of a family before a wedding by an estranged ex-husband in 1996, the Ukrainian internment camp victims from after the First World War. I think about how many plaques will stand in the future, which unspoken tragedies might we recognize in this colonial town and which are yet to occur. One side of the cemetery is a small steep hill that drops just below backyard fences on Cascade Drive. Many days that I've walked here, I have heard before I have seen a pair of kids tobogganing down. I wonder, can it be called tobogganing if it is with a plastic crazy carpet? What makes the difference between tobogganing and sledding? I wonder, will my mother be buried or burned? I try to discern the patterns of plots and how the names flow into each other, how heritage dictates position of plot. Russian names are scattered throughout in clumps of family here and there. A large and old section of Chinese headstones in one area and the largest headstones altogether are overlooking the city, not hidden away between trees. I walk alone here most often, but not always. It feels both proper and eerie to walk with someone, to speak and laugh and comment on the words we see and the ways the plaques have been designed and etched into and decorated. I worry about spring. I worry that what the melted snow leaves behind will not strike me as much as what is covered. The plastic colors less stark upon green and brown than on white. These next three that I'm going to read are all part of a larger series of poems that are called tiger poems. And so this first one is called Pie as a Concept. You meet with the tiger around twice weekly to discuss what's been marinating in the kitchen sink. Pearl Jam's Black, the concept of pie, your brother's addiction and how it affects piggy banks, your own laugh in relation to the tigers, a curse of S. And when you said discuss, you were speaking dishonest. Tigers cannot speak honest or otherwise. He only growls a little when he wants something and you can't say no, he's a tiger after all. Anyways, he'll let you talk again afterwards so you bear teeth. The second poem is called Locks Triple Checked. You begin to see tigers everywhere. The kind bus driver becomes one the professor who scares you, your doctor who saved your life, develops stripes as he writes your prescription. 
You start to look for the nearest exit in every space you enter. You plan escapes in case a tiger appears in the grocery store between the deli and frozen meats. You wonder if your boyfriend, your teenage brother, your eccentric uncle is a tiger, has dabbled in it, even considered it. You check mouths for fangs whenever they open. You triple check locks every night before bed. And this last one I'm gonna read of the tiger poems is called Grandma's Tupperware. You keep a bit of grace in an old orange Tupperware container in the pantry behind oats and canola oil. You convince yourself it hasn't expired whenever it peeks out at you when you remove what's hiding it. Occasionally, you climb up a stool to reach it, in particular, take it down, dip your pinky finger in to see if it stings or is discolored or stale. It isn't yet, but maybe that's because you never touch it for long. Your mother finds it one day when she is looking to borrow some brown sugar and sits you down to say that your grace isn't for the tiger, it's for you. Wow. Thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, those were beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing them. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, happy to. Happy yeah. to. <laughs> uh, so, so why don't we start by just talking about your uh, poetry, uh, such beautiful and moving words. Uh, in Plastic Flowers, you engage with the theme of beauty in the manufactured, uh, from the flowers produced as facsimile to uh, interrogating the way we construct our uh, death rituals and elaborate housing of the dead. Uh, could you discuss how you came about meditating on the topic of death and the beauty that often emerges from our attempts to manufacture the ways that we continue to interact with the dead uh, once they've passed? Well, I guess during COVID, it's like kind of impossible to not be thinking about death, especially as an artist, because like, that's such a big concept in art anyways, is life and death. So definitely COVID was part of what inspired that, which sucks. <laughs> um, I've always found cemeteries to be quite beautiful because they are like, they're interesting in seeing how different people honor their dead loved ones, I guess. And the, the ways in which they're remembered from their tombstones in cemeteries and how that kind of interaction with grief is so real in a cemetery but it also makes living very beautiful at the same time and the plastic flowers to me are just such a good like representation of holding on to your loved ones because there's no way that you can without somehow fabricating something to remember them right so yeah does that make sense? Sorry, I'm no, rambling. No, yeah, that definitely <laughs> makes sense. The image of the plastic flowers and the holders of the tombstones is, uh, especially with the contrast of the, <clears throat> the like the gray and the white of the snow and the winter, is just very striking. And I thought it was interesting the use of plastic flowers because often people think of. Uh, real flowers when you think of laying mm. flowers at gravestones and things like that. So this idea of putting plastic flowers there so that they can retain that sort of beauty uh, that you might want to keep mm. when you're honoring uh, your past loved ones uh, was a really mm -hmm. interesting image uh, for you to use in the poem, I think. Thank you. 
Yeah, I, I found that interesting too in my walks there, how many plastic flowers there were in compared to living ones. Mm. Um, yeah, because I would have thought the same thing, that you bring real flowers, but I guess the plastic flowers are always bright and colorful for a long time, right? Well, and it's that, uh, it kind of touches on that exercising of control over this thing that we don't have control of, which of course, you know, as you brought up in these COVID times is a very large part of reality. And I, I think you really managed to bring that through in the poem. And I, I really appreciated uh, having that resonance come in through your words. Something else that I also do, because you talk specifically about certain events of that happen uh, in the Okanagan, like the hotel fire and and things like that. And uh, how much research did you actually do in terms of looking at the headstones and researching who is buried at the cemetery and things like that? So after I did my first walk there, I did some looking into it because I was wondering, like, how old is this cemetery? How much history of Vernon is kind of encapsulated in this particular cemetery and it's the city of Vernon cemetery. So there's a lot of history. It's really interesting to see how the number, how far the numbers on the gravestones stretch back. And so these, there are plaques. There is a very large plaque for the Ukrainian internment camp that was located in Vernon around the second or first world war. Um, and so I did a little bit of research on that to figure out, you know, when, when it existed, when it was built, where it was built, um, all of these things. And, and it's so interesting because I'm from Vernon. So this is my hometown and I know a lot of, you know, the locations and a bit of the history, but it's interesting how you don't learn about the horrible things <laughs> that have happened in your town like the internment camps or like this massacre that was actually quite famous and it happened just before I was born. Um, but like no one talks about the horrible things that happen in your city and they're just kind of left and pushed away in the graveyard, which is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really interesting and sometimes very dark local history that exists in a lot of places often doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, so it's really nice that you bring that to light in your work, really centers it in that place, like in Vernon, this is happening, right? It's not just any cemetery, it's this very specific one. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like you also, uh, in both sets of poems here that you brought uh, to talk about today, uh, it feels like you have a really good way of kind of engaging things under the surface, right? That seems like a, a theme of these, uh, of everything you brought here is this way of just kind of digging in a little deeper with a little bit of nuance and pulling those out. Uh, and that kind of brings me to the other set of poems you read, uh, the, the tiger pieces. Uh, these three poems, uh, in them you have a, a very elegant way of addressing the 
trauma of uh, assault uh, and while well, in processing that in a way that is both uh, validating and sensitive to the narrator's experiences uh, and simultaneously allows space for this beautiful nuanced interrogation of uh, the content they address, uh, such as uh, through the use of food metaphors uh, to bring attention to that theme of uh, consumption and being consumed. Mm. Um, I was wondering, how did you go about weighing these different sides uh, of the sets of poem in, in such a really leveled fashion? Well, one thing I always try to include in my writing is very specific details and things that are very specific to my own experiences and what I see and are not generalizations necessarily. Because I think when you use specifics in a weird way, it lets other readers kind of include their own specifics because your mm. specific will bring out their specific that they think of when they think of exploitation or of death and whereas when you use a, a general term like death that means like it kind of doesn't mean anything right mm -hmm. it's it's too big to wrap your head around so I think using the specifics can help like I try to help the reader's mind narrow in on their own specifics in that sort of category or genre and with the with the tiger poems my um use of the the you second person um point of view was very intentional because my own experiences with exploitation and victimization are not a one off so many women and and other like young people old people everyone so many people have their own experiences with that and so i think by using the the you second person um i guess was trying to bring that experience to more than just myself that the narrator is a larger collective of people who have experienced their own trauma yeah it's it's interesting i'd say everybody has tigers in their life mm -hmm. in different ways and different experiences so it's one of those things where reading it it's relatable almost immediately this idea of a character in your life who consumes a part of you whether that's more traumatic or less traumatic obviously varies i, I really liked the tiger poems a lot um, i wonder if you could speak a little to your choice specifically of using the tiger as a metaphor. I mean, generally we think of a predator or something like that, but was there a specific reason why it was a tiger out of all the predators that you could have picked? I think it's the answer to that may not be <laughs> very deep <laughs> or inspired. Um, but I, I honestly think it's because in the last few years, like I've been thinking so much about bold colors Mm -hmm. And to me, the tiger is such a, a bold, bright image, whereas other predators you might use don't have that same visual, like, striking appearance as a tiger does, right? Right. So mm -hmm. I think, I think really it was probably the orange. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad reason for making a, a creative decision. <laughs> I love colors. 
Yeah, in the third piece, <laughs> you talk about the orange Tupperware container, and I thought that was a really nice tie-in mm-hmm. to this idea of orange and the tiger kind of being everywhere in a way, even in the places that you don't expect. Mm. Now, um, this neither of these are, are things you've actually published in Broke Press, as you were mentioning. No, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you mentioned, uh, well, well, just that is, is that they, they may one day, you know, find their way, uh, on the page through your press. Mm-hmm. I was actually hoping, uh, you might discuss what the process, uh, is like putting your own work into print, uh, especially when it comes to chapbook publishing, which is, uh, as much of a, a visual art form, uh, centered on the production of, of a beautiful physical object, uh, as much as it is about the words held within, uh, I was wondering if you could just kind of walk us through what that's like, uh, because of, uh, how much you've done it and so successfully. Mm, thank you. And I know both of you, if I'm correct, both of you work with chapbook um production and publishing your own work through chat books right a little bit a little bit, <laughs> a little <laughs> okay. bit of self-publishing here yeah, yeah. For sure self-publishing <laughs> gang let's go um broke press is a small press operated out of vernon bc that focuses on canadian writing mostly poetry but in the future short fiction the long poem one act plays um really wanting to emphasize canadian voices and voices that haven't maybe had a publication before. Um, first thing I ever did with Broke Press was I, it was before I really even knew what I was doing with Broke Press, was I published a small collection of my own poems. And that was in, I want to say 2018, I think. Um, and that, since then, I haven't done too much production with my own work in the same great extent as a chapbook. I've done a couple of poems, zines, and things like that. But that first book was really, my intention was maybe not so much to publish my own work so much as it was to learn how to publish work in general mm. and how to get those words from someone's brain someone's manuscript into a real book form um so looking back on it i'm like man i should not have included some of these horrible poems that i have in here oh, no. <laughs> but I, I feel like that's just every writer with anything that gets printed all very of eternity. relatable <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so really that process was about figuring out how do i get these words to a book so other people can read it words to a book to an audience kind of thing um which I learned so much from that process and even though some of the poems I'm like oof shouldn't have done this I'm very grateful for that process because I learned so much during it right yeah it's really great to have that learning process I mean you got to start somewhere right Mm -hmm. and it's really nice and it seems like it's grown a lot since then yeah through broke press I've I've published three more chapbooks in the past couple years the first one was an anthology of Okanagan writers called stupid and it was all horrible poems by different writers in the Okanagan so in that little anthology there is 
uh, stupid poem from John Lent and Michael B. Smith and Anne Fleming, um, Caitlin Forth, Amy Thiessen, my sister-in-law is included in there, a few others. I'm sorry that I can't remember who else is in that. It's about 12 poems. Um, and I've also published through Broke Press a short collection by a writer from Kelowna, Sofia Fedorova. And a friend of mine who I took some creative writing classes with, Ethan Heckrod, is the most recent. And the next one will be Michael B. Smith's wonderful long poem that I am so excited to introduce to the world soon. Yes. That is so exciting. How do you find that the process was different putting other people's work into print versus putting your own work into print? Hmm. In some ways, it's easier... It's interesting to edit other people's work that's not your own because in some ways it's easier to be objective because I didn't think of these words. I've never thought of these ideas before. I'm just reading them. But I also am a much harsher critic towards myself and my own writing than I am towards other people's. So the, the editing curve has been definitely the hardest part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and figuring out how can we work together to make your poems the best that you think they can be and the best that I think they can be without watering down your writing with my voice or, um, you know, without taking away from anything that you're intending to do here, but by strengthening those poems. Um, so it's very exciting to do that. And it's also having seen my own writing in print from my self-published book and the Malahat Review is so exciting to actually be able to give writers an object that is physical that has their words in it because it's very exciting to see Mm -hmm. that on paper Mm -hmm. yeah it is very exciting yeah yeah well and there's something about that tactile object and the amount of care and attention that goes into a chat book especially because there's such you know so much smaller objects than uh you mm-hmm. know what you might normally find in like a, a larger poetry collection and they're intended for a very direct audience relationship i've i've always really uh loved that about chat books uh, and as we mentioned earlier we uh both em and myself have dabbled a little in a, a bit mm-hmm. of that and it it really is uh, a nice process um so when you um you've got a new work to consider and you're you're going through the process of preparing to put it into print uh quite a lot of energy goes uh into it mm-hmm. uh an investment uh and, and as i was just mentioning you know for for most of us uh this is kind of tantamount to a, a work of of pure magic uh i think that's a sentiment that uh anyone who's engaged with a chat book uh, really mm-hmm. shares. Uh, would you be able to kind of walk us through that process uh, and what it looks like and and how you go about, you know, not not just the, the choosing uh, and editing of the words, uh, but the, um, the, the work that goes into producing these products, what type of uh, tools you work with, uh, the kind of uh, process of creation uh, that uh, on more the kind of visual art side uh, that complements and has to uh, really work so well and interconnected with the words. Mm-hmm. Sure, I will. I will go through that process and hopefully I don't forget any of the big steps. <laughs> so after... I have worked with the author on their manuscript and we kind of have a 
final, almost final manuscript. The next step is the book design, which is probably my favorite part of the process. Um, and lots of people, when they think of book design, they're like, oh, you make covers, which is true, I do. But I also, I find the layout of the page and how the poem appears on the page and the page size and format is so important to the poem. And so my favorite part is, is like line spacing and stuff <laughs> and figuring out how the poems can look best on the page. So that is the the next step and probably the most time consuming because there's a lot of trial and error and printing proofs and seeing that once they're physical, not on a computer, things don't look right and you need to change this and that. Um, so book design is the next big step. And during that process, there's, you know, um, applying for an ISBN, which is the official Canadian library cataloging fun paperwork stuff <laughs> and the the official part so that this is a real book and then after the design is the printing which I just use a laser printer because that's what I have access to so the the printing is the fastest part because the machine does it all and then after the printing comes the actual production of the books which is very time consuming and I usually set aside a good three long days, binge watch a couple seasons of Sex in the City and fold all of the pages one by one. Then you trim the books as one and then I do a simple stitch binding to keep them together. You can also staple chapbooks, which is very smart <laughs> to do and sometimes I wish I had done that instead but I think this stitch binding um I want to reflect my care of the author's work to the author and and take that extra time to make it seem a little fancier than just a staple yeah and then market it and sell it and give it to people <laughs> that's the hope yeah. right I do mm -hmm. love stitched chat books there's really something that makes it feel very cared for i did a little self-published run of a very 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 small chat book and i hand stitched all of them it was a very time consuming process but it made me feel really attached to them just like as a work mm -hmm. because i had made them all myself um how collaborative is the process for to for deciding on those materials with the author that you're working with? Is that something that you make more of a decision of, or do you is it kind of a back and forth between yourself and the author? I try to be um, as collaborative as I can to an extent, um, because so I took the writing and publishing program at Okanagan College, so I have training. <laughs> in bookmaking and book design as weird sounds weird to say but I guess it's true um so there are like practical things that most authors would not consider in the making of a book so there are times when I have to rain on their parade and say like certain things aren't gonna work but I try I definitely try especially with the cover because I know that's very personal um to people how it looks and how it presents itself to the world. So I 
definitely with the cover design especially try to be as collaborative and open to ideas as I can with the materials I have available to me. Yeah, but it's a learning curve for sure. And each project is a little different because some of the writers I've worked with kind of hand me the manuscript and say, I'll be happy with whatever you make. And others are more wanting to be a part of the process. It's different each time. Well, and clearly you're really adept at navigating that because the stuff that comes out of Brook Press is really just stunning work uh, that you do. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely mean that is uh, you managed to bring out this real thing that, that does have that real uh, feeling of care, which I think is ultimately what folks want out of a chat book, not just uh, writers, but also readers is there, there is such a level to this very unique thing. Uh, so uh, that that is just absolutely wonderful. I'm wondering, uh, where can people uh, find you? and the wonderful works of Broke Press. Uh, get their hands on some of these chat books as they are coming out. You mentioned a few upcoming, very exciting mm-hmm. projects. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. Well, right now, Instagram and Twitter are the, the best places to find me. And my handle on both is just at Broke Press. Instagram and Twitter are the best places to find me. And you can just reach out to purchase any of the chat books I still have available. Yeah, send me a DM. Fantastic. And in the show notes, uh, there will be links to both your Twitter and Instagram handle. Thank you so much. And right now, that's all I got, I think, without giving away too many fun projects that I'm working on in the future. Um, I have been receiving a lot more submissions from random people than I was expecting, which is really wonderful because I was really expecting like a couple of my writer friends to send me their manuscripts, but I'm receiving a lot from different places and different people. So that's really wonderful. Um, So this year, I will, I'm hoping to have about three or four Broke Press chapbooks being published throughout the year. And as well as one audio publication that I am working on, a little analog audio project that's coming, which I'm really excited about because I want to do some weird stuff with Broke Press too. So, oh, yeah. wow, that's so cool and exciting. Mm-hmm. Of course, as a podcast, we're all about that audio format <laughs> <Right>? content. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really yeah. amazing. It sounds like Broke Press has a lot coming up in 2021. And I hope so. We're <laughs> really excited to see what comes out of it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Claire. It has been a real genuine pleasure talking to you about your work uh, and everything you've done with uh, Broke Press and will be continuing to do with Broke Press uh, as things continue to come out there. It's a one woman job. I am the operator, owner, editor, designer, and book producer, social media manager. everything of Brook Press. <laughs> well, it's really awesome. Uh, and, you know, we thank you for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, and it's amazing. It's amazing. And it we, really we, is. Uh, it's a lot of things to be juggling all at once. It's really impressive that you're able to run that on on your own. So it's we're really excited to see. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Wonderful to meet you yes. virtually. Thank you.
All right, it's time to sit down with our fellow collectiver here at the Inspired Word Cafe. Joining us today to chat about what words have been inspiring our writing is Henry Grayson. He, him. Henry Grayson has been described as having two legs, two arms, and a whole lot of gumption. He's an animator and writer working in Kelowna, British Columbia, and his favorite animal is the honeybee. Henry, so happy you could join us in the cafe again. Ah, thank you all so much. It's a pleasure to be here. My favorite place to be, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yes. Well, in, in our virtual cafe. <laughs> yeah. It's nice and relaxing here. Don't gotta worry about anyone bothering me, because if I if they are, I just mute them or turn them off. You know, it's great. <laughs> you know, I feel like we really confuse people with the whole cafe thing. <laughs> Because there's no I real mean, cafe. Yeah, but that's definitely for the charm, though. It's it's like an inside joke. Like once you're in, you know, you're like, oh yeah, the cafe is inside us all along. <laughs> the cafe is wherever we are. <laughs> exactly. The, the cafe is where the poetry is. Well, speaking of uh, poetry, words, writing, all that stuff, uh, I, I guess I'll kick us off here. Uh, and talk about uh, something I've been reading lately, uh, which is C.L. Polk's uh, The Midnight Bargain. And this is a book that it's a novel. But weirdly enough, this novel has been inspiring me to write a lot of poetry. Uh, the idea of this book is it's set in this fantasy world where... Uh, people have access to magic and uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on around that and you have to like channel spirits through your being to like be able to do these greater magics and stuff and uh, the, the the problem here is it's a very sexist society where uh, women are uh, bound at a certain age uh, with these magical collars so that once they get married they don't uh, end up having these spirits inhabit their children because the uh, the assumption is well as soon as uh you have kids and stuff you're you're not going to be able to control your magic and stuff and uh you'll have these evil uh spirits taking over and whatnot uh but of course this flips it around and follows yeah, uh, one... so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> follows uh fo follows beatrice is our, our main character and uh goes through this whole process of kind of navigating this what's called bargaining season uh which is basically like kind of marrying off your kids kind of deal um and it really starts off feeling like you think oh this is gonna be some uh jane austen type stuff where it's like about the complexities of these upper class folks and the way that they're you know bargaining around for their marriages and things like that uh but it very quickly turns away from that and kind of flips it on its head and becomes a real good critique of class dynamics and uh it jumps into this whole realm of like you know how you can take back uh access to well in this case it's magic but take back access to your own power uh and fight the patriarchy hell yeah yeah it was wonderful and i loved it and it was like literally first page in because I was kind of on the fence, to be honest. I, I really like CL Polk's work, but I, I saw the, the fantasy set up, and I love fantasy, but then I also saw the like whole marriage bargaining thing. I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm down for that. Literally, page one, I was like, oh my goodness, I love this. This is just amazing. Oh, uh, wow. oh it was so good. So good. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> so, uh, But one thing that really inspired me in it was 
the whole uh, idea of kind of making these kinds of bargains with spirits and having a spirit inhabit you and, uh, and talking back and forth with it and the conversations and stuff that happened. Weirdly, that really inspired me to write more kind of conversational type poetry. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's also a testament to just C.L. Polk's brilliant writing and uh, poetic aspect to just their writing. It really feels like there is... Uh, just just so much thought into every sentence, every word, uh, as well as this, you know, really epic kind of tale unfolding throughout here. It, it, it's been making me kind of uh, think about uh, that the particular dynamic that uh, Beatrice, our main character, has with the spirit that she makes a bargain with, uh, even though she's not supposed to. It's like very faux pas. Uh, and that kind of relationship... Uh, with the with an inner voice kind of constantly having that conversation it it just really really got me kind of excited about that kind of writing and I, I found it just leaking into my poetry which is just the nicest thing from such an unexpected place conversational poetry I don't know if I've necessarily thought about poetry in that way before what what do you think conversational poetry looks like well in what I've been doing kind of based on this is kind of having like you know, just the the two voices, this back and forth, uh, and, and that really was inspired by this because it wasn't really something I had thought of before. I I didn't really think of you know, uh, I mean, all art is to some degree I think a conversation of a sort, but uh, usually when I'm writing poetry, I'll just have kind of one narrative voice, but having the back and forth, uh, kind of like or or like almost like balancing multiple consciousnesses. Uh, in a single piece to look at, you know, a, a issue uh, in the case of what I've been writing, uh, it's issues around uh, neurodiversity and uh, different ways of interpreting the world. But think of it from multiple points of view at once uh, is something that I, I just started really enjoying and totally didn't expect to be diving in. That's so interesting. I wonder if maybe we'll see some fantasy uh, poking out its head in your poetry as well. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> fantasy. Now I'm inspired. <laughs> yeah, it's super cool the introspection you can gain from just any kind of literature that really gets to you or just media in, in general. It's just that was something that totally you don't you're not looking to find something that's going to like rip you open and show you a piece of your core that you didn't even know is there. But it comes along more often than not, I find these days. It was just a lot of introspection going on with the quarantine and all that. Uh, but yeah, I, it's just a fascinating thing. I always I always really appreciate it when you can get something like that out of a good old book. Oh, yeah. And it's like I was just literally th- picking this up to like escape to. And yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, maybe, gotcha. maybe you're right, Henry. Maybe it is the, uh, the, the introspection that comes from being so isolated in this pandemic. <laughs> um, but I, I think also it was just like the brilliance uh, of this book simultaneously inspired me. But who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe I have been spending a little bit too much time alone as well. They're called me, they're called me, you know. Uh, Henry, what what have you been reading uh, in in this time of uh, somewhat isolation and such? Uh, what what what's what words have been inspiring you? Oh, I'm so glad you asked him. It's on how I'm prompted. I love it. The <laughs> uh, so what I've been reading these days, um, I've actually uh, a couple of years ago or end of 2019, uh, my family and I all banded together and formed our own little book club. Where each month, we just read something new just to keep. Uh, us in contact with each other through all this stuff 
and then make sure that we're always like, uh, I don't know, we have something to talk about at the end of every month. We come together, we bake something in our own separate homes and then just eat our treats and talk about the book we read past month. And that's something that's really been keeping me going. And especially so with this book, it's a, a novel by Michelle Magorian, and I really hope I pronounced that right. Uh, it's called Goodnight, Mr. Tom, which is a, it's an older book. Um, I wish I knew what year it came out. But anywho, it's this really fantastic story about this um, grizzled old man who lives in this small English town. And it's in the backdrop of World War II. And all these uh, London kids are being shipped out to the countryside. They give them more protection from the Nazi bombings. So um, Mr. Tom is put in charge of this young boy, Willie. And he's like a recluse little boy who's very shy. He has a very um, abusive home situation back in London. So he's um, coming out of a shell throughout the whole book. And it's never in a very overt way where you're like, oh, this is the time where he's, it's his time to shine. He always does it in a way that's very specific to himself. Like um, he's very cool and calm and collected, but he gets the chance to perform in the school acting troupe. And he's like, oh, this is where I shine. I mean, no one ever predicted that that's where he'd come out. Um, but more, more ab above that, that really got me into the book was just the, the setting. Like it was just so lovely to read about this beautiful countryside where they spend their days picking berries to make jam and just really wholesome kind of fun like that where I was just, yeah, you can just imagine yourself in that situation. Like, wow, it's instantly relaxing. And that's not even getting in the chapter where they go to the, the ocean side and just um, they meet a stranger. And they're like, we'll catch fish if you let us stay in your house. And I'm like, oh, agreed. And that's just how they spend the week. Yeah, I'm like, oh, man, to be to be in a time where you can do that and just, yeah, yeah, I'll give you some fish if I can have a place to sleep. I just want to chill out by the beach. I just really appreciate that. It sounds like you're also you're also picking up something to read to escape. I don't know if you like you guys uh, have it out to pick what you're you're reading uh, uh, for your book club and your family, but uh, it just it sounds like you're also picking up stuff to just like get away from the reality of things. But it sounds, it sounds like you also picked something that is really a nice escape. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Like each month, uh, we've read Stephen King, we've done some horror novels, we've uh, gone through the gambit of all sorts of different genres: the good, the bad. We really get it all, but this book really uh, reached out in a way that none of the others did because a lot of them have backdrops of like, oh no, this is like a covert spy trying to get into this Russian complex. And you're like, wow, this is pretty intense. I wouldn't want to be this person, but you read this book and you're like, I want to be everyone. I want to, <laughs> I want to hang out. I want to go to this English school. It's just, yeah, it was very peaceful and relaxing. And there's, there's times where like that starts to get darker tones when he's like playing and going back to London because. Um, he's being requested back by his abusive mother. And like, oh, please, no, please. I don't want this to happen. And I just really appreciate any time something can make me feel that way about a character, good or bad. And it's like ah, a guttural reaction, like, hey, Willie's my friend. You leave him alone. Yeah, it's yeah. so great when you get really attached to characters in stories. And it sort of feels like, like you said, like they're your friend and you're like super oh, yeah. emotionally invested in what's going on. Um those are always the best books to pick up because it's just you just feel like you're there with the characters and the story becomes like a memory for you, not just a story. Yeah. Reading. Oh, that's wonderful. The story becomes a memory because I definitely reflect back on this like quite some time where I'll just be thinking just how the world is these ways. I'm like, ah, just we actually um just sort of sorry, a tangent off of this. But when the in our book club, when we bake something, we made uh, scones and blueberries because that's one of the parts of the book. And just eating that, it was like, ah, oh, I'm here. I'm, I'm on the English countryside, just chilling out with Mr. Tom and his big old horse. 
<laughs> yeah, it was just, it was a great time to be even just that because yeah, I don't know. Escapism is really what I'm pining for these days. Just a, a break from the reality of the world, which by all means is uh, improving and getting better, but still, you know, it's tough stuff mm-hmm. to be in the situation we're in right now. So any, any work of art that can alleviate that or just provide some creature comforts, what's, there's nothing wrong with that. But has, and it has an escapism, like that, that urge to just I don't know, leap to the countryside or <laughs> escape into a blueberry scone. Uh, has, has that been uh, finding its way into your writing and, uh, you know, what, what you find yourself creating these days? I'd have to say so, but not in a way that directly correlates. It's just the relaxation that comes with something like this. Because um, I work full time as an animator and just going from that to writing, it's very... Um, yeah, it's a lot to do in one day or let alone a week or however long it takes to do all this kind of stuff. So just to have an outlet that's still creative, but to just recharge my batteries, it's much needed in these, in these ways at unprecedented times. I think it's precedent at this point. I think we've come full circle around to this precedent. <laughs> it was precedented last March. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shucks. Wow. Yeah, I'm really late in the boat now. <laughs> but I definitely, I really, um, I want to, my dream is to create something to the level of this where you have characters that you're like oh I, I i wish the best for this character i don't want anything bad that come from them i want them to be well like as a creator i want them to be put in these situations that tr- are trial and tribulations so that the audience can look at that and be like no please i want to see the happy ending for this because if you're making stories that are just about nonsense that just begin and end i I've seen a lot of that and I can take it or leave it, but something like Mr. Tom, it's, it's stuck in my head. I think about it a lot and man, it'd be cool to do something like that. That's I the think dream. so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone thinks that in this call at least. And it's like, yeah, I want to make art that's memorable. <laughs> that's very aspirational. Well, I, I can't wait to read that. It sounds like it's still very much work in progress, but I mean, aren't we all <laughs> at that point with our work? <laughs> but I cannot wait to read uh, these uh, T- Mr. Tom-inspired uh, Henry Grayson characters coming up. So I, th- this sounds really wonderful. And I think that is a nice sentiment. It doesn't always have to be so so dark and grim and stuff, right? Yeah. You can have nice, happy characters you just want to be friends with. Mm-hmm. And reading the book doesn't have to be like, okay, how is this making me better as a writer? It can just be like, oh, I'm enjoying this. And w- it, unknowingly, that's making you a better writer. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, what have you been reading these days? I, I've, I've, I've been pining for a book to recommend my family book club. And uh, w- what would you recommend? Well, on the topic of escapism, uh, I have been picking up something. This is actually a book that is very commonly in my reread cycle. I've read it a number of times now. Um, it's The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents by the wonderful Terry Pratchett. Um, and... Yeah, I have to say this is probably one of just my favorite books of all time. Uh, it's it's a youth book, but it's one of those books where it's it might have been written for a younger audience, but really it's an all ages kind of book. There's lots of fun jokes in there that really are you read it and you're like, this is definitely for the adult reading to their kid, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, uh, the premise of the story is that it there is a cat named Maurice and a group of rats who have uh, suddenly gained intelligence. Uh, And this is set in the fantasy Discworld that Terry Pratchett wrote a number of books in. 
and they go around from town to town and pretty much play a con of of faking a rat plague and they've uh wrangled in the services of this random kid to play who pretends to be the rat piper who comes into town and pipes all the rats away with his flute um but it's all pre-planned of course and so the book starts out with them riding on from their last uh their last con and then having a discussion about how this is going to be the last time they do it as they're coming into the town of bad blints and that's this and this that's the story is them doing their one last con in this town um and it's really just this wonderful fantasy world that is built. Um, it feels very real and very tangible, even though it's like some, it's one of those things where some things are really relatable and kind of regular, you would say, but there's also this fantasy thing of where like vampires and werewolves are real, but everybody uses the telephone. <laughs> like it's like one of those things, it's like a really interesting fantasy world and the characters are just so wonderful. I mean, Maurice is a very sassy, street smart cat and the all the all of the rodents have names that they have found off of like labels in garbage and things like that. So the rats are named things like dangerous beans and peaches and ham and pork and things like that. <laughs> They've got really fun names. Um, the rats pretty much go through this existential crisis of like we have intelligence now and like what where's our place? in the world like what does it mean to be a rat right when you can think about things and they you know they think about they they find these storybooks with animals with clothes on them and they're like so the in these stories these animals are wearing clothes and they're treated equally by the humans but we're not treated equally by humans in the real world so it has some really interesting like kind of real world parallels going on where you talk about like equality and depression and the way that different people who are different are treated differently um and it's a really interesting story and it's a really great reread and i love the world that the story plays out in I mean, I always love a good con story. I Ever since I was a kid, anytime there's a story with a really good con, it's just like, it makes me so happy because it's so clever and the twists and turns are always very exciting. But uh, the older I get, the more, you know, con stories I consume, the more I notice uh, that oftentimes con stories are used as a really great way to talk about uh, power dynamics because of course there's you know always the overarching power dynamic in a con story about you know who knows what right and who's pulling what over whom kind of deal uh, and that usually allows authors to dive into this whole thing of well you know what does what does it mean to be uh, equal or seen as equal with one another? What does that mean in terms of existing and established power dynamics in our own world? And uh, I feel like Terry Pratchett did that really well in uh, Amazing Maurice where that kind of pulls out uh, mm -hmm. of there. Yeah, and it's it's just one of those things where you read the book and like you were saying, Henry, with Mr. Tom, it's you want you read it and you're like, I want to write something like this you know like i want the world building is just so done so perfectly and i have been thinking a lot more about starting to write some more fiction because i've been writing a lot of poetry but 
fiction is something that is kind of a bit tantalizing for me lately. So it's definitely been inspiring me to think about writing about I love urban fantasy a lot. That's a genre i wouldn't say that amazing maurice is quite it's kind of urban fantasy but if it was like old-timey so it's like kind of there um but yeah like i would love to start doing some fantasy writing and really and get some interesting characters going and some really uh immersive world building going on like terry pratchett did yeah it's especially something along the lines of the amazing Maurice. Yeah. We're just the synopsis alone. is like, Oh, okay. I'm in like you hear about these rats who get intelligence, who want to pull off cons. And if that's not a tantalizing pitch, then I don't know what is, <laughs> but just to have that nugget of like, this is the essence of the story and this is what I'm delivering to you, but it's pretty good, isn't it? And this is just the tip of the iceberg, all the beautiful characters that go into it and all the wonderful tropes that they get thrown on their head or, advance in some way it's like man that's really cool to make yeah that's awesome i really want to read that now <laughs> oh i highly recommend it i will recommend it to like every person ever who I meet, oh yeah so. <laughs> totally totally worth it and, and it's pretty fast read too, yeah it's a fast it's, read. Uh, it's meant for a younger audience that's just something i enjoy generally about uh stuff that's written for a younger audience or, or young adult fiction stuff it's like you can just binge a bunch of them <laughs> and they're yeah. usually like really intense topics and so you kind of want to binge yeah similar. good night mr tom very similar where it's a younger audience in mind book but still it, it hurts it hits you in the heart because i i really value that as a way to get the children is to tell them that the, the realities of life about beat them over the head with it it's like yeah death is a thing that happens but it's not about what's left behind or no it's backwards death is a thing that happens it's about the, who gets left behind and how they deal with what they're doing but they can pull through and get keep what they're aiming for but yeah that's that's sure oh my i've been orbiting around terry pratchett for years now i really just gotta buckle in and read something because everything i hear is always like man that sounds really cool and like something i would enjoy yeah there's a lot to pick from but if you're gonna start anywhere i do recommend the amazing maurice and his educated rodents <laughs> I'll bring it to the table for book club. <laughs> well, I think we're all going to be exchanging books here. Uh, that is, I think these are just some wonderful titles to be uh, escaping to right now, uh, especially. <laughs> but in general, uh, a good escape this time of year, always a good thing. Uh, let's just run down the titles and authors we uh, talked about. I discussed uh, The Midnight Bargain by C.L. Polk. Uh, my topic was uh, Good Night, Mr. Tom by Michelle Magorian. And I talked about The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents by Terry Pratchett. All right, well, thanks, Henry, so much for joining us again. Pleasure. Yes, pleasure as always. Yeah, it was, yeah, I, yeah so it was great. And, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll be talking to you uh, in person sooner rather than later. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this time. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back in a month with Kurt Slauson, he, him, who will be reading from his new poetry collection, Ghost Atlas, recently released by Runamuck Books. And trust me, you won't want to miss this. The podcast is made by M. McMillan, he, they, and me, Shimshon Abadia, they, them, and by Claire Thiessen, she, her, Henry Grayson, he, him. This podcast is a production of Inspired Word Cafe Society and is funded in part by the city of Kelowna. The theme music is by M. McMillan and the logo is by yours truly. If you haven't had a chance yet, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really do help. 
And if you really like this podcast, feel free to share it with a friend. That word of mouth thing works pretty well. I uh, heard it from a friend of a friend. Stay tuned for our special episodes of Inspired Word Cafe live events, which will be dropping oh so very, very soon. Our next open mic event is coming up on April 1st, 2021 at 7 p.m. Now, like everything we've been doing, including this podcast, it will be a physically distanced event with very limited spots for readers. So if you want to read at this event, please message us on Facebook at Inspired Word Cafe. And if you just want to watch live, check out inspiredwordcafe.com to find the Zoom video conferencing link for this virtual event, even if you're not in the Okanagan. Speaking of the Okanagan Valley, we'd also like to take this moment to acknowledge that this podcast is made on the unceded traditional territory of the Sioux Okanagan people, and, more importantly, that we are uninvited guests on this land. For more about the Okanagan Nation Alliance, please visit seelks.org. That's S-Y-I-L-X dot org. And for more about the Inspired Word Cafe, please feel free to check out inspiredwordcafe.com and follow us at Inspired Word Cafe on all social media. Thanks, Thanks for stopping, stopping by the cafe! cafe.